I'm here today with Dave Evans, one of the teachers of the most popular class at Stanford University. The course isn't on computer programming or entrepreneurship. It's called Designing Your Life. And the premise is as crazy simple as it is audacious. It's that if you take this class and apply the principles, you'll lead a happier, better life. You can see why it's so popular. Hello, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, whenever you are listening to this, it's good to have you here. This is the Maxwell Anderson Show, or maybe I should say the Maxwell Anderson Show Beta. It's an experiment, a test in podcasting. When I was a little kid, I grew up watching Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show. My parents would go to bed and I would stay up and watch him interview people, and he was a hero to me. I uh, thought that that's the job I wanted when I grew up. So to do a show myself is just a lot of fun, and I hope you enjoy it. Um, I'm going to be occasionally posting episodes where I'll talk to thinkers, leaders, entrepreneurs, um, and have conversations about what makes them tick and what are their ideas and how can we uh, better understand the world, better understand ourselves um, together. Today is a great start because I'm talking to Dave Evans. Dave is not only the professor of the most popular class at Stanford University, but he is also someone who knows quite a bit about design. Um, He led the team to develop the mouse at Apple Computer. Apple, of course, had the first mouse in history. Then he later became one of the co-founders of Electronic Arts, which became one of the biggest video game creation companies in history. And now he's taking the principles of design that he's used throughout his career and applying them to teach kids at Stanford about how to design their lives. Dave and his co-teacher, Bill Barnett, are now releasing a book called Designing Your Life. In the book, they share the principles and the frameworks that they use in the class to teach these students basically how to design their lives and and live happy lives. So uh, it's a great read. I encourage everyone to pick it up. You can pre-order it on Amazon. And in this conversation, we get into a lot of the meat, a lot of the good stuff. I think you're going to love it. If you want, you can check out the show notes for this episode on my website, www.maxwella.com. And you can sign up for the Weekend Reader there, my weekly newsletter of the best ideas in culture and technology. And you can get the link to buy Dave's book. There's just a note that the quality of the sound isn't that great on Dave. And that's my fault. I think I had my mic on while I was interviewing him and it got a little echo. So the first, you know, five, ten minutes are really kind of he sounds like he's from outer space. He gets a little bit better after that. But uh, try to get past that and just listen to the content because it's really phenomenal. You'll hear when he starts going. He's got a mind that goes a thousand miles a minute. And it's fun to just go along for the ride. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. Buckle up. Dave, thanks for coming. Max, thanks for having me. As you know, I always like talking to you. <laughs> well, the feeling's mutual. Um, and, you know, I, I, let's just get right into it. Um, so, you know, you recently wrote, uh, along with your co-author Bill, a, uh, a piece in the Wall Street Journal. And I'll just read a, a, a portion of it that you say, we seem to operate under the belief that if we just find out what we're passionate about, everything else will fall into place. But there's a problem with this approach. It hardly ever works. And that is, I mean, that is probably, hey, what's the top 10 list of uh, most common pieces of career advice? Follow your passion's got to be number one. Yeah. You're saying it doesn't work. Just unpack that. Why? It doesn't work because 
Every one of us contains more aliveness than one lifetime is going to permit us to live. There is not a single best possible version of you. There are multiple really legitimate versions of you. And so what the question, what's your passion, and then what you know it, just follow it. <clears throat> the logic of that question assumes that there is a best answer, and the secret to finding it is your passion. So there's really two things going on there that are there are two really wrong things in the question, what's your passion, as though that's going to organize your life. Number one, that there's a single best answer to who you are, and you've got to find it. And number two, that passion is absolutely the right key, and they're both false. Uh, but it's always been what I've wanted is to have that that kind of one guiding idea. There's that book, the the Power of One, where yes. the kid wants to be the middleweight or whatever boxing champion of the world, and every time he comes to a crossroads in his life, he asks himself, "Well, what choice is going to help me become the middleweight boxing champion of the world?" And it's right. the power of this one idea to uh, guide your your life. And I, that sounds incredibly attractive and incredibly compelling. And I just have not found that. And I feel like a lot of people feel are like me and are concerned that they, they haven't found that. Right. Yeah. And, and I think you and the many people like you who are more talented than one single idea could possibly contain are worried about something for no reason whatsoever. And we really, one of the things we really want to do in the book is give people like you the freedom to stop chasing the answer to a question that doesn't have a good answer. What's my single driving passion that will organize my life, give my best gift to the world, and make it all work out? If there actually isn't such an answer to that question, there isn't one best answer, then chasing it is a guarantee to be unhappy. Well, it, because it's the wrong question. But now, let me see, do you want to know yeah, why is it the wrong question? Tell me what you mean. Like, so you're the middleweight kid, right? <clears throat> Let us not conflate two things. Once I've made a decision to pursue a path and a goal, particularly a very aggressive goal, like getting on the Olympic team or something like that, then single-mindedness in pursuit of that goal is really a powerful tool to help me get there. So while that kid wants to go after being a middleweight champion, having nothing else on his mind, not getting distracted, is a brilliant operational strategy. It is not necessarily a good upfront discernment decision-making strategy. Which way do I go is not the same question as how do I get there effectively. So which way do I go? Now, sure, there are people, and maybe you're, the young man you're describing is one of them, who know early on exactly what they want to be, and the world actually lets them be that, and so they have that single-mindedness. Trip Hawkins, the, the, the actual founder, whom I co-founded, Electronic Arts, knew exactly who he was. He was a Tom Dewey philosoph philosophically motivated game designer. His first game company was started out of his closet in his bedroom at the age of 12. He's been on a laser beam guided linear path since he first became conscious. And that's an incredibly rare group of people. If you're one of them, great, go for it. But for the rest of us, um, there are lots of things that attract us, or none compellingly. So then the question becomes, how do I decide? And we can help with that decision. But it starts with, it's okay to not have one perfect single answer. When you used, in a conversation with me once, um, you used an analogy about kind of opening up presents on Christmas morning. Yes. Uh, can you can you can you share that? Because one, I, I won't do it justice. Uh, right. But I found it I found it actually pretty helpful with this idea. One of the questions we ask groups of people when we get together is, "How many lives are you?" I you know we sat there at coffee you know in Midtown, Max, not too many months ago, and I asked you, "How many lives are you, Max?" And you looked at me funny because of course we intentionally asked sort of a screwy question. And the point is, how many of you are there in there? And so the idea is once you recognize that there are more lives within you than one lifetime will fit, then you don't have to worry about the fear of missing out. Of course you're going to miss out. Let's say there are five different lives you could live that are all interesting. And, you know, you're a smart, educated guy living in a target-rich environment, which means you're probably going to see three and a half to four of those possibilities even come within a point of reachable accessibility. So they're going to float right by. The one you're choosing, you get to do. But the two, three, four, or five, you're not going to have time for. You're even going to see. And rather than freak out and go, oh, my God, is that it? Did I miss it? Have I missed it? Have I missed it? Was that the right one? Oh, no. Is, am I sure this is the one I really want? 
Again, all that worry, all that voice anxiety is around the single-minded clarity that there is one best right answer, and I have to find it. And it's not true. So the Christmas morning analogy is, imagine your life was something like this. It's Christmas morning. You know, you're nine years old. You know, you're the perfect age to be a Christmas morning kid. And you walk into the living room, and there are 10,247 presents for you under the tree. And you go, oh, my God. And then, then you hear your mother call from the kitchen and go, honey, by the way, don't forget that the family's coming over for brunch at 11, so we only have an hour. You have to get all your presents opened in an hour, uh, and then we're putting them away. And then the question becomes, oh, my gosh, should I start ripping through paper like a madman to get 10,247 things open in 55 minutes or suddenly realize, whoa, I'm never going to get there, and that's okay, isn't Christmas a wonderful, prolific thing? I'm now going to sit down and pick out a couple of things and enjoy them and really have a great time. Of course I can't get to everything. It's the nature of the world in which I live. It's the nature of what it's like to be on Christmas morning. Christmas morning is a prolific morning where we get to sample the more than we could ever get to wonderfulness of Christmas Day. And if your life is like that kind of a Christmas Day, maybe it's not 10,000, but maybe it's, maybe it's 20, maybe it's 8. You know, and so what we then suddenly realize is rather than rushing around trying to find the one true max, we look at the four or five really legitimate maxes, the two or three really legitimate maxes, and say, at this point in my life, what is my discernment about? Which one of these I deserve to be pursuing at this particular moment in time? And for a while, and then we'll see how that goes. And let us not forget these choices we make about the path we follow are all about going into a future that we don't know yet, over which we don't have control, with people we haven't even met, to solve problems that have not been brought to us. So what we're not, you can't know the answer up front. You can discern with your best possible wisdom a, a healthy, life-giving path to pursue, which may or may not work out. Even if it doesn't work out, it doesn't mean you were wrong. It simply means you were in control of the universe. Yeah. So good choice making is not the definition of success. Good choice making is about wise, life-giving pursuit of things that we, and that's why in design we say we build our way forward. We don't solve our way forward like an engineer who has all the equations. You don't, all the, you don't have all the equations to solve your life. You're not a math problem. You're a human being. And human beings grow in fact, the person you're really making decisions for, you haven't met yet. It's called Max 2020. I stand in front of you know, 200 MBAs at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and I say, how many of you are really hoping to have a career in that thing you can't talk about today because we haven't invented it yet? And half the hands in the room go up. I go, great. Tell me how you're planning to do that. You can't, you can't architect, you can't orchestrate that perfectly. Yeah. You can set trajectories, you can join the ongoing improv group called humanity and wisely build your way forward. Does, it, does this contradict the idea of, like, of uh, be true to yourself? Like there's like, you know, be yourself, be true to yourself, but uh, that gets, feels more confusing if you're saying that there's more than one self. No, there's one self, but there's not enough room. There's not enough room in a lifetime to get your entire self out. Mm. There's the self I'm currently playing in the world, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so as I look at that couple of years of my life, do I want to live into Dave? I mean, I started teaching at Stanford nine years ago. There's a little thing on the side that, as I sort of would descend into my relaxed 60s, you know, I'm 63 now, I've got four grandkids, you know, I'm trying to, you know, meter down a little bit. The thing freaking exploded in my lap, you know, it's become the biggest thing I've ever done. And I have to decide do I want to start a whole new company to do a training business? Do I want to become an author? Or do I want to, you know, support the book and then go back and play with my grandkids and learn how to sail my boat a little more effectively? Or no, maybe, you know, let's go, let's go start a company again. I mean, these are really different lives. And they're all legitimate. So I can be true to myself in more than one way. Self-authenticity, right, is not expressed in only one way that just barely shoehorns into the years you have on this life. So you can have a, I think you absolutely have to be true to yourself. We talk about coherence in the book. Who you are, what you believe, and what you're doing, when they are in alignment, 
allow you to live the coherent life. And some people are living incoherently. They're not being themselves. They're not being, they're compromised with who they really are so severe that, that it's making them crazy. We all have to make some compromises. We live in a broken world. But we want to move that, toward that coherence. The key thing here is that it's just not a singularity. You know, are you settling that? Are you sure this is it? Have you really found it? Is this the right thing to be doing? Are you, is this the best use of your time? All of those normative cultural questions start with the assumption that there is one precise, best, optimal answer to you. And everything else is some degree of a compromise that you're settling for. And frankly, it's your fault. That anxiety, that shame, frankly, we, the culture is accidentally throwing on everybody is burdening a lot of hearts and souls in ways that are not helpful. And frankly, it's distracting us from the generative activity of getting out there, living into applied curiosity, running some prototypes on our ideas, and moving forward. Yeah, it, it's like, it's, it seems like with, you know, that it should be pointed out that this is a kind of a, a luxurious problem to have, to the what, what should I do with my life, that to even have choices about it is... Um, you know, represents a luxury that many people in the world simply don't have. Um, the uh, but what you're many kids. Well, let, are, let, me, let, let, let me let me agree and disagree. Okay. Um, gee, this sure sounds like a first world problem to me. Right. You know, is an observation that many have made to us, and we've made it ourselves. But what? Yeah, but we've been. You know, we talk to working class people. We talk to truckers, and the truth is, um, if we assert that everybody has some degree of freedom, right? Um, even Victor Frankl, in his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, while he was um, a prisoner uh, during World War II in the concentration camps, he recognized that he still had the freedom to decide how he reacted to his captors. And we all have some degree of freedom. Now, when you look at whatever degree of freedom you have, whatever degree of agency circumstance has left you, right? how do you go about applying your decision-making to that freedom? Do you apply it by assuming that there is a right answer that you have to somehow just come up with and that's, that's the best thing, or uh, that's the singular best thing? And if you haven't got that one, you probably should judge yourself. Or are you saying, I'm looking for a healthy, good answer as best I can. I might even try a couple of things out. I might, I might be curious about which way I could go here. And I'm planning on paying attention as I go and adjusting in real time. Those two postures, the posture of a design mindset, which is to curiously collaborate and iterate, or the posture of a scientific engineer is going to solve this thing once and forever, and then I'm going to write the equation in ink in my book and look back at it as the correct answer for the rest of my life. Those two points of view can be applied to almost any decision. GD offered me to go on to the swing shift you know, um, at, the, at the factory, should I take that decision or not? That's the only choice I get. I'm barely making I can barely afford my bills. But if I took the swing shift, I could coach a little league because I'd be around during the day. I wouldn't sleep much, but there's a big trade-off with that. You know, I also want to be there in the evening. So, but, you know, and I could, I could play with that. So there, everybody has some degree of choice. Okay, good. Fair I, I think you've convinced me on that. So fair enough. We all have a degree of choice. Um, but on the idea of not finding the singular right thing, yeah. is it? Um, I think kind of the I would I would argue that the going um, maybe if it's not maybe it's stated explicitly if but it, at least implicitly yes. I guess philosophy of Silicon Valley sure would be that uh, if we have enough data yeah eventually uh, we AI will get good enough that's going to make right. better decisions for us. Is this right. can you I mean is it, is it that we're really just our, our minds aren't really equipped to manage this well, but it, it eventually, like, there will be the personality test or whatever that you'll take, and it will say, oh, Max, you should do this. Dave, you should do that. Well. Or is it a different kind of problem? I mean, you know, um, I, I do teach at Stanford where computer science is the number one major, and it's the number one engineering school in the country, and I, too, have made a lot of money off of technology, you know, in my history. Most of my income has been from that the last 45 years. Um, but um, let's be clear on what's what and what's not. So I'm a big fan of big data. I think it's fabulous. I love it. I really do. Um, and I think as long as we apply those tools intelligently, we'll be fine. We just have to not lose sight of what it means to be human. 
What it, what does it mean to be a person? And a, and a person is not a machine. A person is not a robot. I mean, look at the. I mean, we are so excited that we're we're able to almost see from here what we might be willing to call a thinking machine. And the thoughts that a thinking machine might be able to have are trivial thoughts. I mean, you look at the 40-watt processor in your cranium, you know, compared to the, 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 the massive thing in the supercomputer these days, you know, the Watson stuff. I mean, you know, it is amazing what we can do. And I'm not saying that technology will never, in certain capabilities, compete with that. But we're, we're not, we're not going to program a human and human beings are more than that. You know, I, we, we have other forms of knowing. Computers have one way of knowing. Computers don't do emotions. Computers don't do intuition. Computers don't do relationships. You know, we talk about a good decision is one that employs more than one form of knowing. There's cognitive knowing, which we are quadrupling down on these days, and that's lovely, but let's not forget that there's social knowing, intuitive knowing, spiritual knowing, emotional knowing, kinesthetic knowing, and social knowing. There are lots of ways to know things. And fortunately, neurology and social science are now learning a lot more about that. We're getting, we're getting to quantify the intangibles as people are looking more deeply into how the brain really works. Um, and that's why one of the reasons what we're doing makes sense and does work for people is that it's rooted in human-centered design. The process we use that has been applied into the book started back in the 60s at Stanford when Stanford you know, innovated a new approach to design which was, an, which was a method for creating innovation, not just a craft to make stuff look good. So let's get into that, uh, Dave. When someone says design thinking, yes, what, the, what does that mean? So design thinking is a term we now use for the original technical term called human-centered design. And, and design thinking or human-centered design has, uh, employs a five-step process and looks at things through five mindsets that define the designer point of view. And it's really the mindsets we're kind of leaning into in the book. Uh, those mindsets are curiosity, mindfulness of process, where am I, what's going on, reframing, let's look at this another way, bias to action, stop thinking about stuff and do something, and collaboration, work with other people, particularly radical collaboration, involve people you wouldn't have normally otherwise, they have points of view that you need to hear from. So we often say, oh, gee, what would a designer do right now? Well, a designer might be more curious and say, what's interesting here? And lean into that question. Or a designer might say, what can we do to try this out a little bit now? The, the theory of prototype iteration uh, is probably the, the absolute heartbeat of design is prototype iteration. I can talk more about why that's the case. But design thinking is um, an experiential approach to having an idea by really understanding the problem <clears throat> and then trying those ideas out in the real world with people using prototypes which are fast, cheap, and educational, quick ways to learn things by doing, not just analyzing. And then with that doing feedback, go to the next one, go to the next one, iterate a couple of times until you've got something that's worth actually doing. Like, you know, I think I'm gonna take that night job, or I'm gonna go to grad school and become a doctor, or whatever it might be. And then you implement. So design thinking is a methodology of steps to come up with a solution to a problem that you can't get to by just using equations or analysis. So let me just try and un like unpack this more by way of like contrast. So uh, I know. So we're talking about how do you really make decisions and how do you make decisions about the thing you care most about, presumably in your life, which is what are you going to do with your life? Yeah. Uh, so another approach would be. Uh, and one that I've tried to various points of failure of, um, okay, here's an option of what I might want to do. Yep. And here's, uh, I'm going to make a pro and con list. And then what happens sure. is I'm really good at generating both pros and cons, like blessing and a curse. I'm, I can see both sides of an issue uh, pretty well. How is design thinking different from that or better than that? Or, or is that part of design thinking? Sure. So, again, the book Designing Your Life is, uh, you know, Bill Burnett and Dave Evans's idea over 10 years of work about if we looked at the question of what do I do with my life and how do I get it, from the point of view of a designer, how would a designer go about answering those questions, what would she do? And that's what the book describes, what she would do. Um, <clears throat> so we're not trying to make people into designers, we're trying to help them become more effective life designers, right? We have a particular application in mind. So the issue you just brought up is the issue of, okay, well, gee, decision-making and choice-making 
is a really big part of life design. So how would a designer go about that? So there's a whole section in the book on choosing. And we have a four-step choosing process, you know, which is um, gather ideas, get a whole bunch of options, then narrow the list down, then make a choice, and then agonize for the rest of your life about worrying whether or not you did the wrong thing. No, 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 not agony. That's not the wrong step. That's 4A. 4B is, and then let go of the options you've not chosen and live happily and do what you've done. So those are the four steps. We talk about each one of them. They're all supported by you know, modern positive psychological theory. But the, and so if we go to choice-making itself, the critical third step in the choice-making process, which is choose. That's what you just brought up. Yeah. How do you do that? Well, if we were going to use human-centered design, we would say, how would a fully rounded human go about that step? And what you've got is a great part one of a probably two, three, or four-part process. And part one might be the cognitive analytic approach. So let's get at all the criteria. Let's get at all the attributes. Let's do pros and cons. In fact, let's put in weighting factors. In fact, let's make it a 4D matrix and put in different constituencies yes. and stakeholders. Now you're look at it from my, my kid's point of view. And look at it from my boss's point of view. Good. Look at it from the served constituency 20 years down the road's point of view. You know, we'll put the whole thing in an AI thing and kind of, gosh, you know, I'm just not good enough at Excel <laughs> to make a decision. Um, and you do that, and that's great. You know, and then, and then no matter what that little bot is, so one comes out 71, one comes out 62, one comes out 45, and one comes out 83. Yeah. And you go, well, I should clearly do the 83, but then you look at the, oh, the 71, the 71 one, you know, there's a lot about that I really like. And you find yourself stuck, right? Does that sound familiar? Sounds familiar. Sounds familiar. So what's going on there is the other parts I of... I haven't done the, the weightings right, obviously. No, the, yeah, the weightings were wrong. You know, and then as soon as you reweight them to make it look like there's a clear decision, you go, oh, I gamed myself, you know. And so you, you, you don't trust that. And the smarter you are, the more trouble you're in. So the problem with that is that your life, first of all, you're trying to predict a future and you don't really know. So the part of you that is humble enough to know you don't know the future is looking at those numbers and knows that they're not really telling the whole story. Yeah. So the part of you, there's, keep in mind, your emotional knowing, you know, Dan Goldman, who's the original author of the term emotional intelligence and gathered all the data from all the scientists over the last 20 years, will remind us that the database of wisdom resides in your basal ganglia in your brain. All the place where all the stuff you know about what works and doesn't work for you, what's true and untrue, lives in the basal ganglia, which has no connectivity to the verbal cortex. It does not speak in words. It speaks in emotions and has a direct connectivity to your intestines, which is why the gut feel is in fact a real thing. It's not the sole input to your life, but it's a real input, and you have to learn how to listen to it. So there's an emotional component. And how do I get access to the emotional component of my story, of my situation? So what you want to do is augment your decision-making process with other tools. And we suggest a couple in, in the book. Um, I'll mention one, actually, which is not in the book. So, for instance, let's say you've got these four columns, and they're all weighted factors. You've got these different scores. And you're staring at these numbers, and they're not telling you what to do. Another thing you do is say, well, how do I actually feel about this? Not just how do I think about this. If I want to hear from how I feel about this, right, then I have to do something to give myself a chance to hear that. So what we suggest is to recognize that when you're making a decision, you don't really make a decision. When you make a decision, what you're doing is you're picking a story. You're picking a narrative. What, okay. What do you mean? So, for instance, let's say you've got these, these four choices that Max is looking at, A, B, C, and D. And the truth is, most people don't spend a lot of time agonizing about choices that are absolutely wretched, and they have no intention whatsoever ever, ever doing. So these are real possibilities. The issue with decision-making is competing goods, not good versus bad. Good versus bad is easy. Yeah. Don't do the bad thing. You know, great versus sucks is pretty easy. Take the great thing, you know. You know, Good, 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 and good. That's really hard, and it depends on what point of view you're taking. So what you do is this. You say, you know, so what that really means is I could make any of these decisions, and if I chose them well and lived into them well, I could be a happy person, and it could actually be working out for me. So then you say, let's pretend that I made each one. So let's pretend I made decision A, and now let's pretend that it's two years from now, and I bump into a friend on the street, and he goes, oh, Max, how's it going? And you go, you know, it's going great. Because I'm living into A really well, and A is really working out for me. And then he says, gee, tell me about that, Max. 
and you give them a little you give them a little narrative about you know let me tell you why my let me tell you why my life is really working you know I you know, came back to the west coast I'm doing this sort of thing and you know yeah I'm working my butt off but here's why it really works for me and and you, you tell this story and that's the story of happy max a Take a day off, do the same thing with B and C and D. Because there is a narrative that goes with the person who chose that. The version of Max that chose that happily lived within the compromises and constraints of any decision, because no decision has everything in it, but people who have really accommodated that decision. And you listen to yourself tell that story. Maybe do it in your journal. And then that gives you a chance to say, which of those stories really sounds true to me? Which of those narratives really awakens my soul in a way that says, hey, it's me. I want to go this direction. You may get a clear piece of guidance. You may not. You know, um, But the point is you're giving yourself access to more tools. Hmm. So that allows you to take not just a quantitative cognitive approach that's going to be all left brain. Yeah. But, you know, it, you, you want to give access to the right brain that's going to give you some other things going on as well. You know, it's interesting. I, I remember you kind of giving me that advice, and I found it really helpful, and I was reflecting on it. And, uh, and I, I, I just looking, I'm looking literally at my notes from our conversation back then, and I can't remember if you said this or this is something I, I thought afterwards, but that you uh, – that we, when we are looking uh, forward to a decision – we're looking at the like the pros and the cons um, and analyzing yes. it, but I think you probably said this. And then when we look back at the decision, it's more about the narrative. I did I, I did this. So like, it, it you know standing on one side of it, you you really think about it differently than on the other side of it. So that's you know I related to uh, picking a name for our kids. So like right right you really get into trouble if you start saying uh, to your parents or anybody like hey we have these lists of five names we might name our baby because then they they are going to have an opinion and the, the, you know and then right. they, of course they met someone who was terrible who had the name Dave and so right. they never you know and then now that's influencing you and pros and cons but if you just say hey we had the baby the baby's name is Dave right they just say Oh, oh, great. Right. And you just move on. So it's living, living in choice. We're optioning ourselves to death. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because when you combine, you know, keep your options open. First of all, get a lot of options. Your choices. We love choices. And then keep those options open. And don't forget, there is a best answer. Yeah. Okay, you take those three little points of view, right, and put them together. You now have an effective tool to beat yourself to death for the rest of your life. <laughs> right. You know, because I'm sure there was a better idea there somewhere. Barry Schwartz from, from Swarthmore um, wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice. Yeah, great book. And in The Paradox of Choice, he talks about, you know, I mean, in addition to, you know, column A is competing with column B is competing with column C in my mind. Then nowadays, in particular, there's column X. Column X is the unknown possibility, the thing I just didn't have time to research. And, and boy, in a globalized, internet cloudified world, yeah. there are always a billion alternatives that I've not had time to check out. So if I want to tell myself, you know, what I'm doing, the choice I made is probably not so bad, but I'm sure there was a better, there had to be a better one, I just didn't get to it, darn it. Yeah. You're, you know, you, you have... We're all empowered to have that worry permanently from now on. And it's absolutely life-threatening. Yes. I, so, you know, choosing what we've chosen is one of the single most popular. We talk in the class. You know, making your good choices important. Mm -hmm. But choosing well is as if not more important. Many people make a good choice badly and in so doing guarantee dissatisfaction permanently. What do you mean? Okay. So let's say I, wanna, I don't know what you mean, and I don't want to do that. So it's okay. Insane. So let's say you know, let's say uh, on the name game, right? <clears throat> you were um, you were really struggling between Hortense and Mabel. Right? I mean, these are very popular names. Yeah. You know, yeah, and that was the, that was the final two. You know, and um, and um, but you know, and and it's the you know you're on the way to the hospital, but you know Hortense and Mabel are great, but they, you know we really wanted an, an artful and, and you know ancient sort of name, and, and I just didn't have time to do enough you know Google research about the thing, so we went we we went with Mabel, you went with Mabel, you know, and and I'm feeling pretty good because Hortense wasn't it, you know, and I don't want people thinking about that, you know, is, is not clear if that's a 
gender blind name or something. And but Mabel's is lovely, you know. And then but what, you know, it's um, there had to be something cooler. There had to be, you know, maybe a three syllable would have been better, you know. And and it's out there somewhere, you know. And then you and you let that grate at you. You know, every time you look at Mabel, yeah, you know, Maybelline, maybe Maybelline would have been three, <laughs> you know, and you allow that possibility to overshadow you. And what energizes that shadow of the unchosen, unknown alternative is the belief that there really was a better one out there and that the source of happiness is best answers. The source of happiness is not best answers. The source of happiness is living well into good answers. Being fully alive in, fully chosen in, fully engaged in, fully attentive to, fully growing in, fully acquiring and engaging in the choices you do make. A good choice is better than a bad choice. Don't get me wrong. You want to make good choices. But between good choices, then the difference between, I mean, the, the, the huge upside is a good choice well lived, not a, a best choice finally found. And it really does ruin lives. I can think of one person I know now moving into their 40s who's on about trial 15 career. Really can't get, you know, has made a living, you know, self-supporting, you know, but is this it? This isn't the it. This isn't really it. You know, the it, the singular it is this siren song that, you know, keeps jerking that life back to something that doesn't exist. And it's very frustrating. Hmm. Does, anyway. We're talking a lot about careers. Uh, mm -hmm. But d designing your life, I mean, it's not just called designing your career. It's designing it's your life. It's not at all. Uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about marriage, uh, as uh, how this these ideas pertain to marriage. So, for you know, I was just read an article last night about in uh, Japan the number of people who are getting married is is decreasing, um, mm -hmm. and the idea of marriage is, uh, it, you know, whereas a career, you know, everyone's kind of getting more comfortable with the idea that hey, you're going to have six or seven careers in your life. Right, right. But the idea of marriage, which still, you know, which marriage rates may be decreasing, but it's still pretty popular amongst most people, uh, is that you're picking one person. Now, we know right. that in, in reality, a lot of marriages end in divorce. Yeah. But uh, how does how does design thinking have something to offer at, to someone thinking about, hey, should I marry this person or, or should I pursue marriage at all, given the permanent sure. Yes. Oh, I think it's um, absolutely, and we talk about those things a little bit more in the book. I mean, we, the you know, often the big presenting question is, you know, do I change the job? Because the job is the biggest single part of our own. It's more time working than anything else. So it makes yeah. sense. Um, but nonetheless, in marriage, first of all, a couple of things. You can pick one person, but you should definitely have more than one marriage. Okay, don't know what that means. Or... Okay, so... Um, <laughs> um, Oh, what was her name? The uh, uh, famous female anthropologist whose name suddenly fell out of my head um, once said, "Well, of course, you know, every every long term marriage deserves to have at least three marriages. You know, the first one for you know love and romance and sex, the second one for family building and child rearing, and the third one for companionship, you know, and social contribution. You know, and you reinvent yourself. You completely reinvent yourself. I mean, my wife and I are absolutely re completely reinventing our marriage right now." In light of what's going on, you know, you're saying within the, within one marriage, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, what, what, within one within one spouse. Okay. I mean, the the marriage I am in today is entirely different than the marriage I was in eight years ago. I mean, my, my wife just retired. We've got four grandkids. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, we just came back from this, you know, thing last spring in New York where we decided we can live in 300 square feet, not 3,800 square feet. So the thing for us to do now is go buy a little box. I mean, completely reinvent ourselves. That's a, that's a completely new marriage. If, if a marriage is a thing you actually execute and live in. I mean, by marriage, I mean, the partner, the partner I have is not the same as the play that we're currently acting in, right? The play we're acting in is the marriage we're currently So, you know, if there's more than one life or career in you as an individual, there's more than one marriage in you as a couple. Hmm. And if I have that mindset going in, 
then when things change, like, whoa, you changed something. You know, I mean, well, sure, over 40 years, people are going to grow and change. And so if you, if, you, if you freak out because they change, because that one suit of clothes you wore on your wedding day doesn't fit anymore, and you're freaking out because, oh, now it's going to break. No, we're going to get it altered. We're going to get a new suit of clothes. We're going to reinvent ourselves. And, and that can be very inconvenient. Sometimes people change at different times in different ways. So great, let's prototype it, let's design it, let's have this open mindset that we're going to iterate our way forward and build our way forward. So a designer mindset is fabulous in marriage. It's absolutely fabulous. Hmm. And it also helps you with that FOMO, fear of missing out problem, because, you know, you think there are compromises you make in your career. I mean, you start raising kids, you start building a lifestyle, you start figuring out what little you can do in the precious few moments you have together when you're actually a busy couple then, you know, you're making lots of choices about what you're going to be investing in and what you're not going to be investing in. So you want to iterate those things. You want to try those things out. You want to give them prototype possibilities and then choose to get it. So if, once you really get it, by get it, this, this approach to, you know, because we apply this, there's got to be a right answer. There's got to be a right answer. Oh, I think that fell short a little bit. That, that mindset is sticking its nose into everything as opposed to, you know, this is pretty cool and tomorrow's going to be a little better. David, it's a very, very different way of living. Can you you mentioned earlier um, kind of these five core mindsets, and you, you kind of really briefly talked about them. But I wonder if you yeah. could just give a, a little bit more explanation of, of, sure. of them. Let me walk them through. Yeah. So the first, one, let, let me sort of try to do them in order. The first one is bias to action. Bias to action would say, when in doubt, do something. So rather than let's just sit here and talk about you know whether or not I want to move to the West Coast. Okay, can I can I get myself a business trip to the West Coast? Can I can we go spend a long weekend there? Can we who can we, we can go stay at Dave's house? You know, they have the back bedroom that you can come hang out there. You know, what are ways to experience it? So let's go. You know, do don't tell. So bias to action. That's what so we not, do. Not, not a bias to hey, let's move to the West Coast necessarily. Not a bias to but quick bias to do something to get you more information. Yes. Or experience yes. to. Right, you run a pro what we call a prototype, and a design prototype, and an engineering prototype, by the way, proves the concept work. That's like beta software's job yeah. is to prove that the functioning software matches the specification in the engineering department. That's what beta tests are supposed to do. That's not prototyping and design. Prototyping and design is, you know, we don't really know what the right we don't really know what we want to do here. So let's go try some stuff. And a prototype is quick, cheap, and has some legitimate learning in it. When we were working on the mouse project, it's, it, I had a big box in my office. I had 115 mice in it. And they were just blocks of plastic. They didn't, they didn't do anything electronic. They didn't know why. They didn't roll around and do anything. You know, and we just had people grab one and run it around the tabletop. And how's that feel? You know, we could, we could have studied the ergonomics of the hand and talked to physicians forever. But it was a lot easier just to go, hey, try this. So, you know, so the first thing is bias to action. Find a way to go try it and try it quickly. You know, don't buy the farm. Go go pet a cow first, you know, you okay. know before you buy the farm. Um, <clears throat> second is curiosity. Huh, that's interesting. I wonder what's going on here. We, we sometimes talk about the pursuit of latent wonderfulness. There's something interesting going on everywhere all the time. So what is it? What's, what's interesting that's going on here? What's cool about what's happening here? What, what can I learn? How can I grow? Yeah, I wonder why they did it that way. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, I wonder why they did it that way. You know, so we're not in judgment. We're in curiosity keeps the mind open. Okay. Keeps it humble. Keeps it gathering. Keeps it inclusive. You know, it's the improv mindset. You know, always say yes. Yes is more generative than no. Are you saying uh, it, it is that curiosity mindset in the process, like in the moments where you're trying to make a decision to design your life as a, you know, or do you mean that it just as a ongoing kind of state of being kind of throughout your life it is, it is a default stance when in doubt be curious yeah but the third mindset i'll throw in that in light of that question is mindfulness of process and mindfulness of process argues in favor of don't forget where you are where am i in the am i gathering information am i am i whittling things down am i trying things out am i making a choice am i post choice and now what i'm really doing is investing in that decision and letting go all those things that don't need to bother me anymore where am I? What step am I doing? And what, don't get ahead of yourself and don't get behind yourself. So on the curiosity question, yeah. 
Um, I am not always in the first step of possibility research. So curiosity certainly goes with, gee, I wonder which way I might want to go. I should try things out. But I want to be a generally curious person, which does not mean that I am acting um, undecided about everything all the time. Mm. A curious person is not without clarity, is not without focus or commitment. But a curious person has an open mind, has a teachable stance. They're optimistic. They're not intrinsically suspicious. Okay. Okay. And, but on the so and then on the process piece, why is yeah. that? Why is being mindful of process important? Like as opposed to what? What happens when you're not mindful of process? When you're not mindful of process, you very often you get ahead of yourself, um, or behind yourself. So you you know, which you, let's say you're just running a prototype and go, boy, that didn't work so well. Maybe this. Maybe we can't do this. Whoa, whoa, whoa! You're moving the judgment now. You're making a decision. You go, well, that was an interesting prototype, and I, what I did find out is. Um, yeah, if you're going to be in Southern California, traffic's going to be a part of your life. That's really interesting. I, I had not experienced traffic before. I was a New Yorker. You know, I used the, I used the subway. Yeah. Okay. And so, you know, that'd be, we'll have to see what, oh, I can't do this. Whoa, we're done now. You know, so that's getting, that's getting, that, that's, that's blowing the process. Okay. Jumping ahead. Um, so, bias to action, curiosity, mindfulness of process, reframing. After I've been curious to look at things, you know, if I look at it this way. I look at it this way, right? Um, uh, this is something that we all get to practice all the time. You get to pick your point of view. You know, what it is it that's going This has to do with this narrative. What's going on helps you decide how you're experiencing it, what's going to happen next. I mean, right now, because of this book, I mean, my life's kind of exploding. I'm currently 527 emails behind. I have prided myself on 24-hour email turnaround for decades. Yeah. This is upsetting to me. There are people going, where did you go? You were one of them recently. Um, you know, and, and, and I hate that. So I, can, I get to either go, oh, man, I'm really blowing it. This is terrible. I, I, you know, or I can decide, you know, what's really going on here is uh, a really interesting thing has happened uh, that's run away from me. And I'm going to have this interesting experience to try to catch up to it because a lot of people are interested in this question about how to design their lives. Probably more people than I can talk to in a day. But isn't that great? And so that's the reframe that says, I'm having a wonderful experience trying to surf a wave that's bigger than I can handle. Mm. How interesting. Mm. How interesting. How interesting. Yeah. You know, or um, the, my mentor often says, look, you know, Max, your experience of your life is really just an idea. If you don't like your life, change your mind. Mm. The most famous example of this one is my wife... I was jumping in the car one uh, night, uh, probably two years ago, um, called her late again about 9 o'clock at night. said, oh, honey, I'm so sorry, you know, I'm late again, I'm going to miss dinner, I'm, you know, really blew it, you know. Uh, but, you know, three more kids came to office hours than I thought, and the provost wanted to get together and talk about what we're doing for freshmen, and, you know, the day just got away from me. I'm really sorry. It happened again. And she goes, oh, you must be so happy. <laughs> I went, um, what, what, what? And she said, you must be so happy. I can I go remind me why I'm so happy that I'm two hours late again? And she said, well, you care about nothing more than talking to students. And if more students are showing up in your office hours than you expected, then that means you're making a difference in people's lives. And, and you really wondered whether or not what you do at Stanford was going to just matter to the kids or was going to finally change the institution or maybe even higher education. And the provost is calling. So that means you're getting into the administration. So this is exactly what you're looking for. And, and, and you know that I don't mind about these things. I always treat dinner on weeknights as a flexible experience because that's the way you are. So, of course, there's nothing to lose. So you got everything to gain and nothing to lose. You must be so happy. Huh. And I went... Um, yeah, yeah, yes, I am so happy. <laughs> I am so, I am so happy. Hmm. You know, I am so happy. This is great. I just called it, I am so happy. I'll be out late again. It's a total reframing of the same total experience. Total reframing. That's reframing. Yeah. You totally are in charge of what point of view you're taking. You know, when you look at that four columns of lists, A, B, C, and D, each one of those sets of criteria, the reason they don't work is no one set of criteria can solve the problem yeah. because the selection of the criteria biases the system. That's why that doesn't work. And the criteria sets differ depending on your point of view. Hmm. A point of view is a set of criteria. You're going to look at it analytically. Hmm. So, and there's lots of points of view. That's great. 
So I can reframe things and then collaborate, which is get other people involved. Life is lived socially. It's lived together. We're, we need to hear from other people to hear ourselves. We don't even know our own ideas until we bounce them off other people. And we're going to get input and points of view from others that we couldn't possibly by ourselves. And through prototyping in collaboration, we actually get a chance to enlist and engage other people to start collaborating with our future selves and sort of sneak up on our future. So be curious, keep your mind open, have a bias to action, go do stuff when and down, don't just analyze all the time. Be mindfulness of process, mindful of process, don't get ahead of yourself, don't get behind yourself. You know, reframe, pick another point of view, the one that's most generative and informative to you, and hang out with other people and get their participation as well. If you do those five things sort of regularly, you're kind of living like a designer. Dave, I I'm gonna be mindful of process here, and and I know you have you've got to hop on a flight to. Gotta uh, hop on a flight to the UK and talk about this stuff to a bunch of people in the United Kingdom. Yeah, but I just want to say thank you for the time, and just I am personally thankful to you. It's I find uh, these ideas extraordinarily helpful, and I know we just almost just scratched the surface. Uh, there's so much more. Uh, I've got to skim through the book, and and obviously thousands of Stanford students can't be wrong. So. Uh, I am excited about it. I'm looking forward to reading the whole thing in detail and uh, wish you the very best on the launch. Well, thanks, Max. And even though we had a long and detailed conversation because it's fun to talk about this, I want to make a, a final comment is the number one thing we're hearing from people who have met us through just reading the book. There's a new class of people we've never met before, people who only know about designing your life because they've read the preview version of the book. Yeah. And the first thing they all say is, you know, after I read the book, I felt so relieved because I think I could do this. So I don't want this conversation because it's been long and somewhat detailed to go, well, that's kind of hard. I don't know if I could ever pull that off. This is actually easy. It starts really small. You pick one thing, do a little of this, do a little of that. Um, part of what is inhuman out there in the world these days, I mean, we're trying to use a very human process that takes into mind that we're growing people and we're foiled people and we're not perfect and we don't control the future. All that's baked into the way we go about this. A lot of other systems out there are kind of in, are you being your best? Are you putting 110%? Are you sure this is really the best? I mean, they're in asking us to be Olympic gold medalists 24-7. You can't do it. But this is very doable. We want people to be helped. We want people to enjoy the process, you know. I mean, it's heaven all the way to heaven, and it's hell all the way to hell, and we think more people deserve to wake up on Monday morning and kind of go, you know, I like this. That's what we're going for. Terrific. I do See agree. Everyone to get this book. It's uh, available for pre-order now uh, on Amazon. I'll put a link to it on the site. And uh, Dave, thanks again. Have a safe trip. Take care, Max. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.